0: Welcome to the Defence Forces Podcast, brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch.
1: Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Force Podcast. My name is Captain Richard Byrne, and I'd like to welcome you to our special podcast series, In Conversation with the Irish Air Corps. This special five-part series will celebrate 100 years of the Irish Air Corps by delving into the oral history archives, hearing from personnel both past and present. This series was produced by the Defence Force Public Relations Branch, and the Irish Air Corps public relations team. A special thanks to Corporal Michael Whelan, the curator of the Irish Air Corps Museum, and Noel Grothier for editing and producing the Oral History Recordings. In episode one, we hear about the roles that the Irish Air Corps have provided and continue to provide to the Irish state. So sit back, relax and enjoy.
2: Okay, so the preliminary.
1: It was a
3: seminal moment for aviation worldwide and and, and a small place like the Air Corps had a key, you know, uh, little island on the the west coast of Europe, but, I mean, a key strategic location. Um, And that key strategic location has influenced especially aviation for a number of reasons. One, because we were the jump point or or the landing point from Alcock and Brown, if you like. Uh, But also, because we're an island people, And an island people always have to, you know, there's limited resources, there's limited space and therefore connectivity is key to that. Aviation is an area that, um, you know, we are, our involvement in it is so far outside, our size should have us.
4: Well coming up to the centenary of the state now and the Air Corps centenary will be part of that because they're at the same time can you talk a bit about your, your planning for the centenary of the Air Corps and its role within the centenary of the state?
5: I suppose the um, COVID has affected, I suppose, a lot of plans in relation to this. And we're in uh, that whole centenary celebrations is ongoing at the moment. So obviously, with the state celebrating centenary in 2022, will be part and parcel of that. Uh, I joined about a week before the uh, 60th anniversary of the Air Corps when they had the the, the week here, the, the party celebrations, for want of a better phrase, and uh, here for the seventy fifth and ninety seven, and that as well. Uh, and certainly, I didn't really believe that I'd be GOC Air Corps when we came to the centenary, yeah. um, which is a fantastic uh, place to be. So, from my point of view, certainly looking forward to it because uh, I think um, we undervalue, I suppose, our contribution to aviation in Ireland. Mm. Uh, uh, we've. If you look back through the history of um i know if it's Morris schetzel and the bremen gets an awful lot of uh publicity in relation to that and that centenary coming up in 28 but the um i i suppose for air lingus commercial operations would have started here and um, the ref if you go back to the late teens, 19 teens built the airfield here and we t- we took it over Um so history i t- I, I look at Baldon casement aerodrome uh, as the i suppose the anchor point for a lot of aviation in ireland but uh, i think we have a unique opportunity to showcase what we've done and um, we introduced helicopters into ireland here we brought the first search and rescue service air ambulance uh if you bring it to the when we got the 139s there in 2006 we introduced night vision uh goggle operations here uh to enhance our safety maritime patrol uh, operations the air corps would have started and um, so we have a huge amount of first i see what we do contributing to the defense forces but also to the state uh in terms of on a on a daily basis coming out of the flight training school did you have a choice of which about which route you took fixed wing or rotary um yeah uh, again again i suppose we're, we're a bit more scientific about it now these days we do ask people but uh after the wings course had set us up in Gormonson, uh and you know that some people are required in heli some people rotary wing, some people are required in fixed wing yeah uh having been informed by my senior classmate that i was going on your structures course well then that decision was made was done and dusted uh personally uh i was uh i was more a fixed wing person i think always anyway I, I didn't have a an inclination towards road viewing uh, and um so that that's the way it was and it uh, just just stayed uh, that way then you know i am a co-pilot um uh, on the the learjet 45 um up in
6: number one up swing so the missions that the Learjet will be involved in are um, ministerial air transport primarily uh, and or other vip transport and um, but also and a role i'm very proud of is it's also an air ambulance platform um, i've been on that aircraft since august of uh, 2016 so still fresh but, but but very much enjoying my role up there Um did the first
3: did the first official man's flight with Jack Lynch as Taoiseach from Baldomino down to uh, Strasbourg. Um, and a little aside again from that, it's funny, it's the little important, the little things that you remember. Took off out of Baldomino, turned heading down towards Strasbourg. Tom Carroll was the flight attendant.
7: Okay.
3: Tom Carroll walked back and the Taoiseach gave Mrs. Lynch and some civil servants there and another minister, I can't remember now but he says "T-shirt would like a cup of tea or whatever and Maureen Lynch says Tom you sit down here now I'm the only one who can make him a cup of tea that he likes All right. <laughs> and Tom spent the next ten minutes explaining to her how she couldn't come up and make the tea hey. she had to
2: sit
3: down there and take the tea
4: wow.
3: different times
4: Fixed me when I was doing the King Air flying I did a, a couple of trips um, up to Belfast actually Maryfield executive uh, flying them up and down We used to do that every every Monday and every Friday and change the civil servants over who were in the Merrifield executive power sharing or power, you know, the the, the Merrifield talks.
8: And of course, as well at the time, um, there was a very important role in that um, civil servants were brought up and down from the north of Ireland. So the Merrifield secretariat in Belfast and um, for security reasons the staff needed to be flown up and down because it wasn't always safe for them to go by road so um, certainly like we would have had weekly flights to Belfast and I do remember certainly at Christmas time maybe on Christmas Eve doing those types of
0: flights. The short notice flights are more so the ones that um, are air ambulances and like we have a rule in my house that you know we always answer the phone it's always turned on because that could be the phone call that, um, it, it helps somebody.
9: Mm.
0: And I remember years ago before, um, we had the air regulations manual and we went down to, um, on the beach craft to do an awful, an awful lot of organ harvests. And we went down to Cork and dropped a, a team down and, um, we were there waiting and waiting for them to come back and i put uh, jeppeson cases which are like big suitcases in between the two seats and there's myself and two pilots and it's just four seats i'm trying to make like a little a bed that we could sleep on for an hour you know um and there's me because i'd spent the full day in work just got home and it was back backing for the air ambulance to go down and i remember giving out and then i got we only got home the following morning at about half nine and i rang my mum and dad on the way home and told them that um, i was on my way back from from cork we went down to cork and uh, later on that day my mum rang me and said that my um my cousin's husband's sister had a heart transplant that day and we had brought a heart back from cork that morning
4: but if you want to skip forward a second to the casa doing air ambulance missions into London and certainly when I became a skipper in 2015 on the the CASA. That first trip into London as the boss of the aircraft and the fact that it's an air ambulance mission and a high priority job with an infant in an incubator. I'll never forget the first morning I was doing one. It was a pre-planned job, but we were in beautiful summer's day. And it was to go into Northolt, which is just north of Heathrow itself. But again, north by about five miles. Uh, when you're on the approach to Northolt, you're, you know, you can see the 747s going into Heathrow, so it's really, you know, focuses what you're doing. I remember, as the skipper of the aircraft, you generally let the co-pilot take care of everything up the the cockpit while the loading is taking place. And um, so, the patient arrived again, like I said, a, a, a toddler in an incubator, or a, a baby in an incubator. So, whereas I've done dozens before as a co-pilot and seeing, you know, and you empathise with what's going on in the situation. Yeah. That first time when I was a skipper, and I was like, it's my, and it rests with me, responsibility yeah. to get this infant safely from here to Northalt with no snags, um, and as smoothly and as, as comfortably as possible. There was a certain, had I been wearing a collar, it was really a, you know, pull yeah, yeah. the collar moment of, this is real now, this is this is culmination of, at the time, say, 15 years training. Um, so, On top of that, the sense of achievement you get is, you you, you can't describe it, it's it's fantastic. The Kingers
3: were brought in to
4: uh, implement
3: Maritime Patrols to, in support of the then EEC declaration of a 50 mile zone on the 1st of April, 1978. Patrols were somewhat different then. They weren't as regulated or as regimented then, so invariably we, you might get a request to fly the 12-mile limit, a 20-mile limit, or 50-mile limit, limit or whatever. So the patrols, we would, in those early days, and the logbooks wouldn't. Yeah. We can have a look at them at some later stage and to find it out a bit. But we would fly, say, up off Donegal, 12-mile limit, fly the 12-mile limit all the way down the coast, uh, around the coast, into Shannon for refuel and cup of coffee and then back all the way around to the east coast um,
2: was the f- had you flown over the sea for long periods before
3: no oh. no sure only had yeah, 15 20 hours in the airplane
2: okay
3: it was still wet behind the ears
10: when we first went down we were we, let's just say we had no sea legs whatsoever
5: okay
10: um we couldn't get we didn't get the navy they didn't get us we were poles apart. We ended up being very good colleagues and I still have some very good friends down there but it was considered the worst detail that you could actually do you land on a ship which was hairy at times and you get on that ship and you could be there for seven days out in the middle of the sea trying to get your sea legs, tying down the helicopter, folding the blades back with the. we used to do the foot blade folding then so there was four technicians and two, two normal SAR crew there and two pilots. So it was quite a big commitment, but we had plenty of people there. There were times out there when I thought we were going to roll over. I fell out of bed many a night
11: and
10: yeah. um, we had a massive system, a McTaggart system, we used to call it for dragging the helicopter in and out. It was like a winch system, electric system. And then we used to tie the helicopter down with chains. And many a night we had to go up and put extra chains on it, and it was pretty hairy. And you could hear that helicopter groaning. Okay. Many a night I thought we were going to turn over, but no. But every day it went off on a patrol, or if they picked up something on the radar, we'd get out, we'd deploy it, and send it off.
7: So,
2: can you remember why that initially happened? That the air car got involved? It's got to
10: do with our two hundred mile limit, and Europe insisted we bought the helicopters, the Dolphin. Some of it was paid for, for the protective or uh, fishery, okay. fishery protection. So some of the money came from the European Union. So when they did that, we had to show that we were actually doing it. So okay. we had to show we had a... Now the CASA does it, out and does yeah. what we can do off the back of a ship. They can do twice as much in a day that okay. we could do in a week. So it was part of the European Union agreement, that fishery protection, and you had to show you could patrol your 200-mile
11: limit. Okay.
4: Um, otherwise, in maritime, yeah, you're very lucky to see some, some really cool things out off the coast. Um, like we operate up to 200 miles away. One of my first patrols, um, I thought, this is going to be great, it's going to be the busiest time of flying I'll ever do. We went off, we are tagging vessels, and we are coming back in, and we got a call to do a top cover, so a search and rescue top cover. So we went into Kerry to refuel and back out, uh, met the helicopter, uh, and we're orbiting and relaying communications while the helicopter winched someone off the deck of a fishing vessel. Um, also in that detail we had uh, done some practice airdropping of some flares so a really busy flight uh, and and great to see but uh, again most of the maritime patrols tend to be a little bit more mundane and yeah. six hours at sea is a long time Um but again i've, I've seen submarines like the the, the equipment on the cars is incredible we were operating up off to the northwest up around donegal and uh, our saros down the back were like no we have a return here just north of uh, of Derry. it's in the irish area of responsibility I was like is it a fishing vessel no there's no registration coming off but it's a definite return it, if the sea is flat calm the radar will pick up yeah it'll pick up a, a boy just bouncing around so we were approaching and approaching we couldn't see anything until we got I'd say within a half a mile there's this little spout a periscope which is sitting up and just breaking water I was like it's a submarine so then we got some altitude, so you could see it was just under the surface you could you see it so we could take pictures of yeah. it then so was it or sort of Royal Navy submarine of some description. Uh, but We've seen all kinds of vessels, we've seen Russian frigates, we've seen uh, Dutch vessels on sea trials as well, they come out to the Atlantic to get a real going over. Um, one of the the best things I've ever seen was we saw you, you see a lot of whale and dolphin connectivity as well, and uh, again one day I was a, I was the skipper and uh, we caught some whales fluking, so breaching the water yeah. and it's great to see.
12: The winter of 62, 63 brought a change in the aviation scene. The very bad snow of 62, 63 forced the government to purchase helicopters and uh, that they would be operated by the Air Corps. So naturally my hat was in the ring and uh, I was lucky to be selected as the, the squadron commander or the flight commander was at that time who would take over the operation of the helicopter scene. And from the world goal we found the Alouette 3 to be a a beautiful aircraft to fly and certainly I fell in love with it the first time I saw it.
5: What's your appointment to the Defence Forces? At the moment I'm Sergeant Air Crew Instructor with number three operations ring. So basically the helicopter crewman, we have many different roles. We have basic crewing which is crewing the aircraft, we have Bambi Bucking we Do which is firefighting with a bucket expanded under. Uh, underneath the aircraft we do para ops which is letting guys jump out of the back of the aircraft with parachutes we do the emergency air medical service which is EAS we also do winching we do cargo slinging and we do work with the special forces basically anything the state requires
13: us to do with with, with a helicopter where they go to for that, we're the only state asset. And the Bambi bucket which holds 1250 litres of water under the AW139 if it's done properly can have a big impact on a fire now you realistically you need more than one helicopter yeah and uh, you need two helico one one f- filling the water and one dropping the water on a constant circuit you'd also have the 135 overhead the ec 135 overhead doing kind of command and control because what you want to do is the analogy is if you if you set fire to something in the corner of this room right now it takes a glass of water to get to put it out if you leave it a minute it's going to take a bucket of water if yeah. you leave it five minutes you're going to need a fire engine so the idea is to hit them yeah. when all it is is a glass of water you have, which all the bamboo bucket is is a, is a big glass of water. But if you use it properly and have the one three five, get the one three nines to drop the water, mm. it's a it's a it's a work of poetry really. It's really yeah. nice how it works. But this year in twenty sorry last year in twenty eighteen, we had a very significant sustained uh, firefight throughout the country and one of the hottest spells we've had in years and years. Started in May sorry started in Started. We went tr- We throughout the summer, May, June, July, yeah. and August. Uh, and well, that, what marks it, apart, apart from the different year, previous years, is the duration of it. 50% strength in number three, so we only have the people we're supposed to have. Yeah. We have to keep EAS and Gazoo going. And we have to keep all the other stuff going. So to sustain a fight is really, really hard. And uh, the, the big pressure in the summer was trying to keep it get crews out every day, Saturdays and Sundays, and as well as EAS, as well as Gazoo, as well as everything else, and people trying to take leave as well. So this year was significant because, not because of the operation, because we're kind of used to the operation, but because of the, um, the duration of it.
7: The one we did recently in Mayo, it was um, a mountainous area, and it was forest fires and kind of gorse fires. And there was no people actually in tra- at at mm-hmm. that point, but there was a, a lot of land and a lot lot of um, a lot of forestry that was going on fire, mm-hmm. um, and we we did six hours flying time on on one day, oh. uh, so we we were launched up on a Saturday on the first day of it, so going up and doing an assessment of the fire, uh, finding your water source and identifying your your hazards and your obstacles. Um, it, it is like a, it's it's a really good operation to do, and and it's you know it really is at the pointy end, you know, of of heli ops and um, and your your crew and ability, you know, the whole crew was working together. We we were very lucky on that day that we had two crewmen in in the heli, so it it gave us even even better okay uh, safety and so you know out each side so of yeah. keeping we actually, yeah we were working. Both sides and then during the band people got off themselves, we were both on the same side. It, it takes a bit of experience and just, you know, walking before you run and you're going, going, going slowly at, at the beginning. And when you see like a massive big fire like that and the smoke can, you know, the smell of the smoke coming in the cockpit and you yeah. can actually feel the heat from the fire from, you know, even three, four hundred meters away at times. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, you really, you need to respect that.
6: So EAS in general started in 2012. I started on it in 2014. My first EAS duty was Christmas Day, <laughs> 2014. I was like, let's screw the new guy. So, yeah, I've been on EAS consistently since then. Um, at least one duty a month, if not two or three a month. So a duty on EAS is a four-day shift. So if you're just doing one, four-day block on its own what you do is you rest off two days before you rest off one day after so it's a seven-day block Mm -hmm. if you're doing more than one back-to-back you get the four days off in between so you're four on four off four on and so i've done a few of those kind of back-to-back shifts your shift time when you're down there um like we're we're limited to a maximum twelve hour day. So in the summertime you work the full twelve hours. It's a daylight service yeah. at the moment. We're kind of hoping to standardise it as just a twelve hour a day that we'll incorporate day and night, but at the moment the service is day only. Um so summertime well what we've identified is that generally calls on EAS happen from lunchtime onwards. So on summertime you want to maximise the back end of the day. So we start at ten, finish at ten. Right. Um in the winter time, because there's less daylight than twelve hours we just cover all daylight so you're up from first light to last light.
13: Yes, yeah, it's great,
6: yeah. It's um, back to I think what the spirit of number three was. We went through a patch of no search and rescue, but number three has always historically had a detachment. Mm-hmm. So whether it was the sard detachment in Finner or later Sligo or the army co op detachments that were in like Monaghan and um, uh, where else was one in Monaghan, I think it was one Cabin or Dundalk, and there was a SAR detachment down at Waterford. We went through a patch between. I would say, 04 up to 2012, where there was no detachment operated by number 3. And uh, it's obviously, you can kind of feel like, you know, the unit was almost like anxious or itchy to get going and do something. Uh, So EAS came up, and it was an opportunity for a prolonged detachment again, and you could see kind of that's where everyone want Even guys who'd never done a detachment before, I think they kind of just felt like, oh, I need to be going somewhere. That's what everybody else did. So EAS kind of... Take that box. And plus it's back to the core values of Gemari's and that that others may live mentality that you're going out and saving people. Um, Looking back, we've done some comparisons against SAR. What we're doing now in terms of like patient acuity and frequency of tasks is far and above what they did in search and rescue. In terms of risk for the crews, probably nowhere near what the guys were doing. I mean, they were doing offshore, like out of the range of the aircraft, winching. We're on island the whole time. Landing in fields and gap pitches and stuff like that. So, in terms of the technical flying aspect, it's probably not as technically difficult as it was. But, in terms of what we're, you know, the positive impact, we're probably having a bigger positive impact than search yeah. and rescue would have in that we're going to like really high acuity calls. In terms of guys in the back, the EMTs, only young lads qualified as an EMT. But every job they go to is something that's bad enough that it needs a helicopter. We're going to. The worst calls in the country on a daily basis and was
2: that trauma in the in the calls There's a good bit of
6: trauma yeah at the moment we're looking at about a third a third a third so a third of our jobs are medical so that could be heart attack stroke and um, seizures anything there's a big broad amount of stuff to fall under medical a third of it is trauma um, and a third of it is pediatric
13: so we'll have a quick look when we get the call we'll get a lot longer where it is really? location we'll have a look on, the, on our maps um, where it is, if there's a field nearby that looks suitable, we'll go for that, we'll aim for that. If not, the road will be more safer and more suitable. So, yeah, we've landed on a few roads, landed on motorways, shut down motorways loads of times, or fields, whatever's safest, safest. Yeah. Get us as close as we can. I've uh, landed on a bridge in Cork, just outside Cork-McCroom around there. So it's a motorway, but it it turns, it comes into two lanes, very narrow part of the motorway, on a bridge. Um, it's a very dangerous spot. That's, this is where we were there for a car crash. It's very good, somebody took a very good picture of it. You can see the heli landing on the, on the bridge. So, the role
3: of the, the flight paramedic uh, with the emergency air medical service is to provide clinical care for mm. uh, civilian patients who are um, ill or injured, typically in remote or rural locations that would be um, uh, a, a It's either there, the access, there would be an access issue for ground ambulances, or there would be a prolonged journey time for ambulances to get them to definitive care, either for um, uh, acute illness or serious traumatic injury.
9: Heavy Ops, 3 Ops Wing is probably the most crazy unit in the Defence Forces. It is constant. in, I think it's the variety of the work that's undertaken by the unit, uh, the com- camaraderie between personnel in the unit um, and the teamwork. It, it's something I'd never experienced before anywhere in the Defence Forces quite as much. Um, I was employed as the Operation Sergeant. Um, I, and I always said the one thing when I was there, I had the best view in, uh, in the Defence Forces. I, my office had a line of massive big windows looking out onto the, the hills in front of you, the runways, the ramp and um, in the unit we have the six one three aw AW139s and two EC135s and um, over the time that I was in Heliops then uh, Gazoo actually came changed from under the wing of number one into number
2: three
9: That's the Garda, uh, the Garda Air, uh, Air Support Unit um, I think because of the nature of the type of jobs that you do over there no day was there was never such a, th- a thing as a normal day in Heliops uh, the phone was always buzzing it was constant uh, from the it started in the brief in the morning uh, The brief took place at 10 past 9 where the technicians would give their brief on the maintenance of the aircraft and um, then on my side operations I'd give a brief on uh, what flights we'd planned for the next couple of days uh, the day continued then between because we ha- constantly have air ambulances um, where the unit has progressed since then we now have the EAS which is the emergency aeronautical service um, which has the 139 in Athlone um, another part of my job then in helis was initiated my landing point commander's course which involves cargo slinging a speciality and I went on to become a heli handling instructor which is the instructor for the the cargo slinging? Uh, it's brought me to amazing places that would be impossible to see otherwise. Um, you know areas on Skellig Michael where nobody is allowed to go to the outer bounds area, the Aran Islands, and um, mm-hmm. loads of places around the country. And and then we've done in Northern Ireland. We actually went to Northern Ireland during the bad snow a couple of years ago when it was the first time an aircraft from the south and the Irish Defence Forces had been deployed to the north to assist the locals in the area. We brought feed to the sheep that were stranded quite um, historically on that as well while we were up there and some of us were waiting out in the snow for the next uh, under-slung loads of hay and feed to come out to us so we, we could distribute them. Uh, we were wondering what was taking the aircraft so long getting back. It was quite cold out and we are having a good moan about it But as it turns out, um, a couple of people were stranded. um, I think it was on the side of a rock up in the north and the aircraft was called in to do search and rescue mission. Mm -hmm. So that was also first, I suppose, being in the right place at the right time. And with the crews and the capabilities uh, on board the, the aircraft at the time, so they successfully carried out that mission.
2: So uh, our job was really just there. There was um, there was a a pitch, a football pitch or sports ground that had a whole load of animal feed, just bales of hay or whatever it was, and we our job was to just cargo sling it up to the different uh, hill sites up in the mountains where it was really snowed in. So first of all, we brought the LPCs uh, and dropped them off at the different points. Then we fly back, get the nets of. Uh, feed and drop them off to the animals and we were doing this for the morning really out of uh Grove, um up, up in belfast and um while we were up there uh my the the captain of the helicopter that I was in uh mick liddy uh big into his winching and search and rescue and that type of thing uh, the air corps had stopped search and rescue at this stage but we it still were kind of mandated to maintain the role we also had kind of the A-Team, we had uh, Louis lenan and Shane Guinan in the, in the back and we had a winch on the aircraft. So Mick Liddy being very proactive, he uh, he mentioned that uh, we were SAR capable and, and let the Coast Guard know this. Mm. Uh, so while we were back in um, Aldergrove having a chat with the RAF pilots, it uh, th- th- was kind of break time at that stage, you know, we, we got uh, word that there was a, um, a search and rescue uh, required and we were asked would we take it uh, so we, we looked for permission from operations and we were we were given it and uh, we were given a nod um, at the time actually Colonel Corkin was there as well he was the OC of, of the wing mm. so uh, it was it was useful to, to have him there to, to get his guidance and um, we first went to Belfast City Airport we picked up two PSNI mountain rescue guys and all their gear and uh, put all that in into the back of the aircraft and then navigated to um Derry it was just north of Eglinton airport up, up in Derry there's a large kind of cliff and again place covered in snow two guys decided uh, to to climb up to the top of the cliff uh, to do a bit of I don't know mountaineering or something like that they got <coughs> I would say they were they were over 3 quarters the way up the cliff and they got stuck on a ledge they couldn't go up and they couldn't go down and uh they, they were in a kind of a bad spot then at that stage so we, we arrived before the, the Dublin based uh, Coast Guard helicopter because we were that bit closer uh, So they sent one from Dublin as well? Yeah, they okay. had sent one from you Dublin yeah. You already, yeah yeah we, we were close by so we, we were able to uh, they, they came up anyway to, to see if they if we needed assistance um, I suppose uh, search and rescue and winching being their bread and butter but uh, we we dropped the two guys onto the top of the, the cliff which was yeah. kind of a plateau and they set up a rope system down to the two yeah. uh, to the two fellas on, on the, the side of the cliff they secured them to the cliff so that our downwash wouldn't knock them off and um, make a position the aircraft over and uh, Louis was the winch up, and Shane Gine was the winchman and he went down and uh, picked the two guys up one at a time and we just brought them back over then onto that, that kind of plateau at the top of the cliff to a waiting ambulance um, and then we got uh, the two PS&I guys back on board and uh, headed back to Belfast City Airport and dropped them off there sure. back to feeding
5: sheep. Our apprentice school is 85 years old next year and yeah. um, uh, in terms of the numbers that have gone through that over the years uh, and developed that. We're the only def- uh, apprentice uh, programme in the Defence Forces at this stage. Um, I'm trying to build that and develop that and what that means for us. Uh, um, and sometimes we take for granted what we have. We don't look at our uniqueness. Um, in terms of our technicians have gone around the world in very senior appointments. Our pilots uh, have done equally the same.
11: Uh, Most people, you know, they qualify, you know, they would get their license and they qualify on one aircraft type and they spend their life working on that aircraft type. But because we're military, like the amount of aircraft that I like, I've worked on the Fuga. And I remember years ago, actually, when one of my daughters was really tiny, she came here on a school tour and you actually gave her a tour Mm -hmm. and there's photographs. She would show me photographs and show me a photograph of the Fuga. She was standing in front of the Fuga and someone <laughs> and she goes, This is a really old airplane. And I went, It's not that old. I worked on that. No, the man said this aircraft is in the museum and it's old. And I was going, I worked on that aircraft <laughs> <laughs> You know, so I've seen like Fugas, Marchetti's, the, the Beechcraft, the HS one two five. Like I've had massive exposure of so yeah. many different aircraft types. And you don't realise that till you go away. And you're talking to other people in aviation, the amount of exposure that we have here. Yeah. And to be honest, how well trained we are here. And because we're military, you know, you have, all, you have to do that balance between your military training and still keeping the military side of things, as well as keeping yourself technically upskilled as such. Like.
10: My appointment at the present is a Flight Sergeant Tech 6 Inspector in Workshops part of 401 Squadron number four support wing. I am over the six workshops, which is the hydraulic shop, uh, the sheet metal shop, the welding shop, the safety equipment shop, the carpentry shop, and the paint shop. And each shop has a sergeant who basically report to me with any snags or any issues they have or how they're getting on and uh work that's required uh to be carried out basically to support the air corps fleet i'm currently the officer
12: commanding communications and information services squadron of the air corps or cis squadron as we call it um, which is the unit of the air corps we are responsible for the um the maintenance and the the provision of all navigation aids Uh, aviation communications, um, control tower equipment and so on on the aviation side. We do helmets and headsets uh, for all aircraft, air traffic control. And then probably the bigger part of what we do these days is the information systems, all the computer systems, networking and all the telecommunications equipment in the Air Corps are all part of the responsibility of CIS Squadron.
14: Yeah, I'm Chief Air Traffic Services Officer. So I suppose the main purpose of air traffic services, in my view, and probably in, in terms of the, the Air Corps' view, is to ensure that we have access to the airspace in Ireland. And I suppose kind of from that point of view, all the aspects of my job kind of fall out. One is ensuring that there is air traffic control to provide separation between aircraft. There's also the importance of allowing our our pilots and indeed are remote pilots to operate in tactical freedom. So effectively, kind of when there's missions on, or indeed training, that they're not interfered with by other aircraft, either military or civil, and that they can operate uh, their platform in tactical freedom. And then kind of on a more uh, strategic level, we'd be dealing with the uh, Irish Aviation Authority in terms of uh, structuring airspace within Ireland. And then on an international level with uh, the EU, Eurocontrol, the European Defence Agency in terms of uh, looking at European legislation and for future developments to ensure that those are shaped so that we can as the Defence Forces can still access airspace.
8: Um, my current appointment is um, Regimental Sergeant Major in 505 Squadron which is the air traffic control unit here in the Air Corps in Baldonnel. Um, My role there, I'm the senior ATS instructor so I'm responsible for staff of about 20 personnel um, but 15 of those are NCOs approximately and um, we have a number of officers in the squadron as well. Um, We provide an air traffic control service 24 hours a day every day of the year um, to military traffic and we also provide a. Raider control service to both military and some civilian traffic um, between nine and half five, Monday to Friday.
12: The the overseas service really was was the main thing that uh, did it for me and, and gave me the most satisfaction. It is what makes us military. When you get involved with the overseas missions, the uniform becomes very important and you understand the military aspect of what you're doing i mean this is maybe a bit rich coming from me who still sees himself in some ways as a civilian uniform and i've been accused of that by some people but yes my view was if i'm in it i'm in it 100 percent, and i wanted to experience as much as i possibly could of what it meant to be in the military i applied for a
14: Chad, uh, it was a new mission, relative new mission in for the Air Corps. Um we had the first time we had a specific role in an overseas mission. We were refueling aircraft and working uh, in the air pod. So I applied for it and uh, I got it. So I went to Chad in 2010. Was sergeant uh, in
15: charge of of the air refueling of aircraft, uh, turnaround aircraft. Basically, it's the airport. The year was 2008. I was uh, part of the 97 Battalion. Um, I was the second in command of the what was co- what was called the TCAS cell, the Tactical Close Air Support Cell. So Frank Byrne, Common and Frank Byrne, was the uh, IC. I was the two IC as Captain, or Acting Captain, because I was acting up, yeah. left at the time. And our role, uh, we kind of had three roles. The first role was um, to run battalion air operations. Um, we were actually attached to the battalion for that from... Um, Brigade HQ in a betcha Um, but we were with the battalion throughout all the form up and everything else so essentially we were part of the battalion in in real terms Um, the first job was to run battalion air ops because we had an airport to run the second job was to uh, provide medevac on uh, on patrol so to organise medevac to select landing sites and identify landing sites throughout all the different patrol routes and the third one was to an extremist call in a, 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 an airstrike. Now, there were differences in terms of what each of us could do. So Frank Byrne had, he was able to call in close air support himself. Mm-hmm. I.e. he takes on the responsibility of where the rounds fall, or where the, the uh, ordinance falls. Whereas I had only, we, we were only provided with, or I was only provided with the, um, so he was a full, he was a, what they call a forward air controller, mm-hmm. fully qualified, fully current. The rest of us were emergency close air support Um So what it meant was, I could direct an aircraft, but the pilot had the ultimate authority. We're in our position and the Chadian Army's ridge was just south of us and they were positioned there. And we were, were, what were we? I can't remember even what time it was. But the rebels opened fire on the Army positions and the Army opened up on everything that they just let loose with everything they had um so we were we received mortar fire um 82 millimeter mortar fire um and it. we also got small arms fire which you know pings off the vehicles you get a, the old pump from a small from small arms hitting the vehicle
7: and this was happening when you're inside of we were all inside yeah so yeah. The,
15: we, uh, we were when the first mark around started to fall we all closed the close our our rooftop doors on the mic mm. like, and uh the more positioned f- f- pointing out um for whatever reason we were we, we had moved down, the, I was in the command mowag, so um, we had moved down the, to the edge a little bit, but we moved back into the centre uh, of the line. And uh, Cameron McGuinness was in the commander's position, back right, and Mick Campbell was in the gunner position, and then the, drive, the driver in the front, and um, myself and the signal sergeant in the back, and a couple of the uh, uh, detachment, like an infantry detachment yeah. as well as, So mortars have had been falling on and off I was trying to at the time trying to relay um, a call to um, to Camp Keir, to request air support so we couldn't get that call through for some reason or else they could hear us but we couldn't hear them for whatever reason so I was at, I was uh, I said to the boss look I can't make contact at home or with the with with the camp yeah. um, so can I jump in the I don't, I don't know who, I can't remember whose idea it was, um, but um, James Sharkey was in one of the cabin moigs and I jumped out of ours and went into his and was able to make contact back home, back to Camp Cure, because mm. he had, he had a different radio sets, he had yeah. HF as well, and um, they could hear us calling for air support, And um, but we knew that the chances were the the French were going to hold back the air support f- until a larger assault on Injimina was going to be made.
10: Mm.
15: So the... Um, uh, eventually the fire subsided.
9: First mission that I was on was in Lebanon. That was from April to November 96. Um, I was stationed in Nakura, which a lot of people say cushy trip for the first one. I thought it was amazingly interesting because it was a multinational company. So it's amazing you learn so much from dealing with other nationalities i was the uh, for the security for the force commander traveling on the aircraft and we were going up to beirut and
2: that was what was your appointment in that mission I,
9: well I, w- I was in the military police at the time okay. so i was in the provost section so we used to do various different duties we'd work on the border Russian and ikra um, and then you'd be on different patrols Um Every time the force commander travelled by air, an MP would have to travel as security on the aircraft as well. While he had he had another security personnel as well, but an MP always travelled too. Um, there was one or two MPs, didn't like flying. Um, I found it amazing. My first flight ever in a helicopter, and it's probably where I fell in love with helicopters, which led to me coming out to the Air Corps afterwards. My first flight ever in a helicopter was a night flight over the AO in Lebanon. Wow. Um, with Etal Air. Uh, which was made possible because I was serving in a multinational company.
1: For more information on the Irish Air Corps, check out our social media channels and our website, military.ie. The Irish Defence Force podcast will be back soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.